Hey everybody, welcome back to another podcast. My name's Luke. Uh, this one's going to be listener questions again. So in this podcast, we're going to talk about training volume. We're going to touch on circadian rhythm and nutrient timing, how those things are related. I also am going to address a question about coaching styles and mention some things around self-efficacy. After that, we'll go to signals for muscle growth. We'll talk about matching training and nutrition and also programming similar movements within the same workout or within the same program. So that's what's on the agenda today. Just as a reminder, if you enjoy this episode, the best way you can support the podcast is just by telling a friend or family member about it. I'd be super appreciative. And if you do choose to share it on social media or whatever, please tag me so I can say thank you. All right, so let's jump into it. The first question is around training volume. And the question is, how come there is a recommendation for 10 to 20 sets, working sets per week out there in the evidence-based community, but you don't seem to recommend that so much anymore? Okay, well, I used to spend a lot of time saying, okay, you can do 10 to 20 working sets per week on a muscle group, but I think there's a lot more nuance to that. And I'm not sure that that recommendation really works that well. So just to set this up a little bit, there is a little bit of debate around training volume. And in general, the literature has found that the more training volume you do, the better results you get in terms of muscle growth and strength gains. So that's a general trend that we've observed. And the idea of working sets comes as a way to track your volume. So we consider a working set, uh, a set on a body part or a muscle group or a movement pattern that is taken relatively close to failure, like within maybe something like three, four, five reps, something like that. Now, it's not a perfect way of tracking volume, of course, but it gives us a pretty good indication of a set that's likely to be stimulative of muscle growth or strength gains. So that's the idea. And so you have this general recommendation of 10 to 20 working sets per week per muscle group as a good target to optimize muscle growth. Now, to understand this interaction of volume and how much volume we can really tolerate, we need to talk a little bit about fatigue as well. Because whenever you perform exercise that's going to disrupt your system and cause an adaptation like muscle growth or strength gains or whatever, you get some fatigue as well. And fatigue is essentially a reduction in your ability to perform to your best level again. So if we did a heavy sort of squatting session on Monday, let's say Monday morning, on Monday afternoon, there's no way you're gonna be able to repeat that same performance again. You're too tired, you have some fatigue. And so you have this reduction in performance and that's what we call fatigue. Now that's likely to actually hang around for at least a couple of days after that. And by the time Wednesday or Thursday rolls around, you might be recovered enough that now you can train again to a high level and provide another big stimulus to your muscles. So our ability to continue to progress and to perform in the gym and to provide a stimulus that's gonna make us better over time is really dependent on us being able to recover from the fatigue that we generate from training. If we're always fatigued, then it means we're not gonna be able to produce another big stimulus that's going to drive more muscle growth or drive more strength gains. It also doesn't feel very good. And eventually if fatigue starts to accrue too much, you might start getting more niggles. You might start feeling a bit listless. It starts to disrupt your physiology in a way that sort of affects your mood and your ability to just kind of function normally on a day-to-day -day basis. 
So what we're really trying to do is we're trying to provide as much training stimulus as we can without accruing more fatigue than we can reasonably recover from over time. Now there might be periods of time where you might push a little bit harder and accrue more fatigue. And there might be times where you sort of back off a little bit and maybe do a deload week or some easy sessions so that you can catch up on your recovery a little bit. But fundamentally the easiest dial for us to turn when we're trying to manage our fatigue and how much stimulus we get is sort of how hard we train or how much we train. So there's a bunch of different things that are gonna affect how much volume you can reasonably do. There are heaps of things that will affect fatigue differently, even if you're doing the same amount of training volume. For one thing, if you train closer to failure, you accrue more fatigue. You also get a little bit more stimulus to the muscle, but you have to balance that stuff. So we could reasonably say that like, hey, I could do you know 20 working sets a week on my quads, keeping three or four reps away from failure, or I could do 20 working sets a week on my quads where I go all the way to failure. And in the second situation, the amount of fatigue you generate is much, much, much greater. It's exponentially more than in the first example. So that's one thing that kind of means that a working set is not really created equal and that might affect the amount of volume that you can do. The next thing is the exercises you choose. Training at longer muscle lengths, or going through a larger range of motion, or having exercises that require a bit more stability requirements, something like that, all of those are going to induce a little bit more fatigue. So again, you might do an exercise like a dumbbell pec fly, which really emphasizes the stretched position of the pecs, and that means that you're gonna incur a little bit more muscle damage and a little bit more fatigue, versus doing, say, a cable pec fly, which probably emphasizes the mid or shortened position a little bit more and so probably induces a little bit less fatigue. In the same sort of situation, you could be doing 10 sets on one and 10 sets on the other, but those 10 sets don't create the same amount of fatigue. You also can't really generalize between individuals. Let's say someone has really long limbs, for example. Let's say they have super long femurs. And so doing sets of squats for them induces a different amount of stimulus and fatigue as someone who has really short femurs for the same amount of working sets. And so you can start to see that there are a lot of different factors that actually affect how much stimulus we produce to a muscle, how much fatigue we generate. And that's why I think that just broadly saying that someone should do say 15 working sets a week on a muscle group doesn't really provide enough granularity or enough nuance to be that accurate. So, you know, that sort of 10 to 20 working set per week idea is like a fair enough rough idea, I think for most people. But bear in mind that within that, there can be really big differences depending on how you program. And it can be really big differences just in the fact that like 10 working sets a week versus 20 is literally, <laughs> the 20 is double the amount of work, which is a really big range. So for most people, I actually prefer starting much lower if possible, because worst case scenario, what's going to happen is you're going to provide a stimulus to the muscle that maybe isn't the greatest possible stimulus for the fastest possible progress, but you should be able to recover from it. Let's say we started off training like six hard sets per week on your quads. Cool, that's probably enough to make some progress. Absolute worst case scenario, it's enough to maintain where you are. And from there, you probably recover quite well. You can add in some more sets. Maybe you go to eight per week or something like that. 
And if you find that you're still making like kind of slow progress and you feel very well recovered, you can push it up from there. And you can kind of find this sweet spot um, where you know, you're using a good amount of training volume, you're getting a strong stimulus, you're making good progress, but you aren't accruing so much fatigue that you basically can't keep training. The problem is if you started on the high end, let's say you started at like 15 sets per week and it happens to be too much for your particular recovery capacity, you may feel like you're not making any progress and your first move might be to actually increase volume, which would be the wrong move. But let's say you went the other way and you kind of recognized that you were accruing too much fatigue and you decided, okay, I need to drop down. How much do you drop down by? Let's say you went from 15 sets per week to 12 sets per week, but the 12 sets per week is probably still a little bit too high. Well, what has to happen is you go from 15 to 12, you have to wait a little bit for the fatigue to dissipate, then you have to assess how long it's gonna take at 12 to really see any potential data that you can use, and then maybe that's too much, and then you have to drop down again. And so you end up wasting like four to six weeks or whatever, trying to figure out what a good level of volume is because you've just started too high. So I prefer sort of starting from the lower end of, of the range and then kind of working your way up from there. Because again, the absolute worst case scenario is that you're just gonna maintain your muscle mass and your performance and you can always increase it from there. So hopefully that answers the question reasonably well. All right, we'll go on to our second question. Can you tell me a little bit more about nutrient timing and circadian rhythm? Yes, I can do this. So let's set this up. Uh, essentially, a circadian rhythm is your body's concept of what time of day it is. At different parts throughout the day for different activities, your body has a certain hormonal state that works better. We have a sort of rest and digest state. We have a, a sort of fuel mobilizing state. So for example, we actually call these in physiology, the fed state and the fasted state. In the fasted state, your stress hormones are a little bit higher. You're mobilizing fuel, that kind of thing. In the fed state, you're mostly trying to store and digest your food and distribute it to different tissues throughout the body. And those are fundamentally opposing physiological states. So ideally what we want is like when we're training, we want a physiological state that maximizes our training performance. When we're sleeping, we want one that is maximizing our recovery and our sleep. When we are eating, we want one that maximizes that. And so we're gonna have these hormonal fluctuations throughout the day that match different activities better. But your brain doesn't necessarily know what time of day it is without some external inputs, okay? So uh, the main one is obviously gonna be light. If you think your brain is sitting in your skull, it's like a dark room and has no idea what the hell is going on outside the skull. But with light coming in, that gives our brain a really good indication of what time of day it is. And this is why I always encourage people to try and get outside in the morning so that you can kind of tell your brain like, hey, it's morning time now, it's daytime. And that helps to sync up and align your internal clocks. And then obviously the common advice is always to avoid too much you know, light in the eyes in the evening because that's when you wanna be starting to get tired and fall asleep. But anyway, the light is a really strong stimulus. So the light hits the eye, it goes to a region in the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And this is sort of like the master clock mechanism. Um, it helps to sync these various clocks that exist throughout the body. And we do have different sort of clock mechanisms throughout different tissues in the body. So that's the main one, but there are other ways that we can sync up the clocks. I like to imagine it this way. If the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the brain that detects light signals is sort of gonna tell us what hour of the day it is, then maybe these peripheral clocks that exist in other tissues can tell us what minute it is during that hour. 
So these are other mechanisms in the body that are probably not as powerful as the, the light receptors, but they also give us some really good information as to what time of day it is. And they help to synchronize and refine the, the brain's concept of, of when, it, when we are at the moment. So things that contribute to that are things like meal times and physical activity as examples. This is why I find it's quite important to be fairly structured and fairly routine with what you do. Not that you have to do everything down to the exact minute throughout the day, but there's a reason why if you always eat breakfast at 9 a.m., you tend to get hungry around 9 a.m. It's because your body is expecting to get food at that time, and it's primed all of the physiological mechanisms required to receive and digest and assimilate and process all of that food. Same thing with training. If you've ever swapped what time of day you train you know that the first like week or two can feel really rough i used to train a lot more in the afternoons because i would lift weights after school and then you know maybe we would do some rugby training and that all tended to take place around like 4 p.m and then after i left school we would start rugby training at like 7 or 6 30 or something like that uh, and then as i started working as a personal trainer a lot more i would do my weight sessions in the mornings you know, so I would lift like mid-morning after my first block of clients and it was pretty tough to try and train in the morning because my body was not geared up for that yet. But once I did it often enough, then it started to recognize that and it became much, much easier. So long story short, it means that yes, our total macronutrients and the amount of calories we burn and all that sort of stuff is super important for our body composition. And there's still sort of the big daddies in terms of, you know, what matters for our health. But when we exercise when we eat, when we view light can have a profound effect on how we feel, how well we sleep, how well we digest our food, all of this sort of stuff. So it's something to pay attention to and something where I think if you already have a pretty good sort of structure in place in terms of how much you eat and your macronutrients and all that sort of stuff, um, you know, how much exercise you're doing and how regularly you're doing it throughout the week. The sort of next step you can take is to really start to dial in a routine in terms of when you go to bed, when you wake up, when you expose yourself to the most light throughout the day, when you have your meals and that sort of thing. So something to think about as a sort of tertiary thing that you can, uh, that you can pursue after you've got the big rocks down. All right, cool. The next question is about coaching styles. So someone has asked here, um, how do you coach people online versus in person? And what are the main differences there? Essentially, how can they be a better coach online when a lot of in-person coaching is around queuing and having a conversation with your client? So this is a really good question and it brings me to a sort of the broad topic of, I guess, coaching styles and how that ties into what is termed in psychology, self-efficacy. So I'm just going to define self-efficacy first, and I did speak about it in a previous podcast around goal setting, but it's essentially your confidence in your ability to deal with different situations, to solve different problems. So self-efficacy is really, really important. Um, it's essentially your ability to be able to handle a challenging situation or a hurdle without the external help of a coach. So, or at least minimal help, I guess. So your coaching style really comes into this. I know when I first started coaching people as a trainer and most trainers do this, honestly, we use too many coaching cues, you know? So when someone's trying to squat, we might be telling them, okay, knees forward and keep your chest up and squeeze the bar and all of this sort of stuff. There's like a hundred different things that we tell them at once. And the problem with that is that although we're trying to be helpful, although we're trying to 
justify our presence there and our rates and all this sort of stuff. Giving people all of those different cues is actually not helpful. Although we are sort of injecting ourselves into the session a little bit more and being a little bit more front and center and present, what actually happens is that you confuse people. They can't focus on all of that stuff at once. And when they have to train by themselves, because they're so used to being reliant on you to tell them all these cues, to count their tempos, to count their reps, to write down what they did, they actually don't know what to do for themselves. And I've had this experience before where I, I might've coached someone for months on end and we've used particular equipment in the gym. And when they have to train by themselves, they kind of get lost and they're like, oh, which one was that again? Which one was that again? Oh, I can't remember which exercise this was because normally I would just say, yeah, cool, you're doing this and show them it and then off they would go and do it. So in a funny way, sometimes coaching people can actually harm their performance and it can harm their ability to have self-efficacy, to do things themselves. But there's a balance to be found because if you're really standoffish as a coach, then that's not too good either. You know, people are obviously paying money. You're trying to justify your existence there. And you need the perception to be that you can be there for support. You can be relied upon and that someone's actually getting the value for what they're paying. And that can be pretty tough, especially when you're coaching online. So if you don't know, I, I exclusively coach people online at the moment. And one of the challenges is sort of providing them enough support and enough structure that they make progress and that they get better, uh, but not so much that they become absolutely reliant on the coach not so much that it takes all my time writing down the details of like a, a meal plan, for example, when at the end of the day, that's kind of not really an efficient use of my time or my skills. And, you know, finding that balance is really, really tough. I, you know, I'm not the cheapest coach around. Like it's, it's one of those things where you often as a coach want to feel like, hey, I'm providing tons of value here, but sometimes the value actually comes in you doing less for the client. And that can be a very difficult thing to do. So. Look, I guess the whole point of this is to say that my main philosophy with coaching is to promote self-efficacy as much as possible. And promoting self-efficacy sometimes means that you go in and you're quite hands-on and you help the client quite a lot. And sometimes it means that you're actually stepping back quite a lot as well and letting them sort of deal with things on their own terms and coming to you when they feel like they, they need the help and the support to sort of get through the next step which is a fine balance to try and strike. And I suppose not every client recognizes that either. At the end of the day, you do have to sort of provide your expertise and your skills as a coach for sure. But sometimes sort of doing nothing, so to speak, is the skill in itself or the right decision. And I think it's important to notice that when a coach decides not to intervene with something or a coach decides not to make changes to your plan, whether it's a nutrition plan or a training plan, there's just as much decision-making and cognitive load that goes into that as to a decision to change things and to institute something different or to intervene and give some advice or something like that. And actually, there's quite a nice analogy that I read recently about referees in rugby, uh, which I suppose applies probably to referees in a lot of different sports. But if you don't know, um, I'm a big rugby union fan. And in rugby union, there are a lot of laws that are open to interpretation in the game. It's quite a technical thing. As a new viewer, it's quite difficult to get into because there's all these weird rules that are kind of really open to interpretation by the ref. Um, and so to enable the game to flow and to sort of not ref the game 
to the letter of the law so that it's very stop-start and, and overly structured and unenjoyable. Uh, it really requires the referee on the field to make decisions about whether they are going to call a penalty or pull the players up or have a chat to the players about something. And it's a, it's a real art, right? So they have to spend a lot of time making a decision as to, cool, am I gonna blow the whistle and stop play here for something that might not really influence the game? Or should I blow it because actually within the letter of the law, what this player do has done is illegal and I need to penalize them for it. And so this article that I read was basically saying, look, there's so much decision-making that happens on the field that you never get to see because there's just as much decision-making and effort that goes into a referee not blowing the whistle as to when they actually blow the whistle for a penalty or something like that. And it's kind of the same with coaching, you know? So uh, hopefully that gives a little bit of insight, but really my goal is that I don't want a client to have spent six months with me and then have nothing to show for it at the end of that. Like they feel like they have to stay with me as a coach to continue to maintain the results or to get better results in the future. That's really a situation that I don't want. And although the client sometimes doesn't sort of see it or recognize it, everything that I'm trying to do with them is to promote self-efficacy. And of course, when you're trying to deal with different personalities, you know, that can be a little bit challenging, but uh, that's kind of the, the aspect that I come in to it with. Cool, hopefully that's helpful. Okay, we have another three questions to go. The next one is around signals for muscle growth. So the question is along the lines of, um, if training is important for muscle growth and nutrition is important for muscle growth, how do those signals sort of interact at the level of the muscle? Okay, so there are a bunch of things that interact to promote muscle growth. And so this is the really rough simplified version of it because it can get really complex at the sort of molecular level. So we have some enzymes or some machinery in the muscle that essentially allows muscle protein synthesis to occur or not. And we have some mechanisms that break down muscle as well. So the amount of muscle that we build over time is the sum of how much muscle are we synthesizing or building and how much muscle are we breaking down or catabolizing over time. Now there are a bunch of different signals that sort of converge that can affect muscle growth. So some of these are training related, some of these are nutrient or nutrition related. On the training side of things, we essentially have mechanical tension. So when we train and we squish and deform the muscle, that mechanical tension on the muscle actually initiates a chemical signal inside the muscle fiber. And that chemical signal can tell the machinery within the muscle fiber to start synthesizing more proteins and build more muscle. So that's one thing that helps a lot. And if you were to sort of put a gun to my head and say, what's the one thing that's gonna promote muscle growth as much uh, as possible above anything else, it would be the training stimulus. But beyond that, we also have nutrition stimuli. So things like having enough protein around is a big one. And the reason that works is because the amino acid leucine sends a chemical signal again to the same machinery in the muscle that says, hey, synthesize more protein, build more muscle. And once that is switched on, we then have to have the rest of the building blocks available there, the amino acids that make up the protein you eat. Those are actually built into your muscle tissue too. So here we have the nutritive factors. So that's one thing is the protein. Another factor in the nutrition side of things is just having some energy availability. We actually have energy sensors within the cell that detect how much energy is available. And if there's not enough energy available to build and maintain expensive muscle tissue, then we see a real dampening of how much protein is synthesized in the muscle. And that uh, energy sensor, if you wanna look into it a little bit more, is called AMPK, AMP kinase. 
Okay, so you can see that there are a bunch of different signals that kind of converge to promote muscle protein synthesis or muscle growth. And that's why it's important that we have the training and the nutrition and the sleep and the stress management and all of these different things kind of all pointing in the same direction because when they do, we get this synergistic effect where we get our best possible results. And it's nothing that's too complicated. It's just doing the basic stuff well and doing it consistently. Okay, next question. How do you match training and nutrition together? I keep seeing people on Instagram posting about this, but I have no idea what it means. All right, so when I talk about training and nutrition being matched, I'm mostly referring to things like how much energy is coming in and how much carbohydrate you're eating. I'd say that the protein side of things is obviously important, but in most cases, you know, eating a minimum amount of protein to promote recovery and muscle protein synthesis is kind of a given. And I think most people do that reasonably well, but the carbohydrate is often where people stuff up a little bit. So what typically happens is when we're trying to achieve fat loss in particular, what people will often do is they'll cut their calories drastically, which makes sense. You need to be in a calorie deficit for fat loss to occur. And that mostly comes out of their carbohydrates in many cases, or they just straight up go low carb because they've heard it's better for fat loss or they've had good experiences with it before. So that's fine, no issue with that. But simultaneously, they'll also change their training to something that is sort of more fat loss focused in their, in their minds, which makes sense as well. And that will tend to be stuff that is higher rep, shorter rest period, um, maybe they superset stuff a little bit more, maybe they pair together upper and lower, exercises or they just train more in general like they do more cardio they do intervals that sort of stuff so what they're simultaneously doing is they're increasing the amount of training that they're doing the training volume they're reducing the available nutrition to support that training volume and recover and that in itself is not necessarily a bad thing certainly that type of training is pretty conducive to promoting fat loss but here's the problem is that that type of training and increasing your training volume is really dependent on carbohydrates so we have different activities that we do that have a different sort of preference for fuel so to speak things like walking or you know slow jogging general aerobic activity is less dependent on your carbohydrate whereas things that are more glycolytic in nature tend to be things like weight training um, sprints intervals think like team sports and crossfit and that kind of stuff those are super glycolytic they're dependent on glucose, they break down glucose. So if we are simultaneously reducing the amount of energy that we have available to recover, we're increasing the amount of training volume that we have, we are increasing the emphasis on glycolytic uh, training variables. So again, higher reps, shorter rest period, more huffy puffy stuff. Um, if we're increasing our emphasis on that, and at the same time reducing our carbohydrates, okay, this might work pretty well in the short term, but eventually what happens is people start to under recover. They start to feel like crap. They start to move less because their brain recognizes that they have a real deficit uh, in available energy. Um, all of these things start to happen and they start to burn out and they feel terrible. So in many cases, I find that for sort of fat loss type training, what's actually a better way of doing things is often to, yes, reduce the number of calories because that's a, that's a prerequisite for significant changes to body comp, but at the same time, making sure that training volume and the training variables are not like hyper geared towards massive increases in training volume, massive increases in glycolytic sort of training variables, that sort of thing. You can still maintain your muscle mass really well with, you know, slightly lower reps, 
slightly longer rest periods, maybe a bit less supersetting, maybe a bit less reliant on like interval training in favor of, you know, if you're going to do cardio, maybe a bit more sort of aerobic style work, that sort of thing. And I'm definitely not saying that you shouldn't ever do high rep work or glycolytic, very glycolytic style work in a fat loss phase. I'm just saying that a lot of people push way too hard on that glycolytic button um, alongside increases in overall training volume when they're having a reduction in the amount of carbohydrates coming in and a reduction in the overall amount of calories, which means they're probably going to under recover. And so certainly the first sort of three or four, five, six weeks might feel okay, but after that they start to feel really crappy. So that's what I mean by matching training and nutrition. When you have a type of training that is more dependent on carbohydrates, let's have more carbohydrates around to support that training so you can actually make some some adaptations and not feel really crappy at the end of it. Okay, last question coming up is about programming similar movements in the same workout or within the same program. Um, so this sort of refers a bit more to resistance curves. So every exercise that we do stresses the muscle in a different way. Some exercises you heard me mention earlier in the podcast will emphasize the lengthened position or the mid-range or the shortened position of a muscle a little bit more. Some exercises will have what we call, uh, you know, like a more of a steep strength curve where, or resistance curve where the exercise goes from easiest, from its easiest position to its hardest position really fast. Think like a, a dumbbell lateral raise at the bottom of the movement. There's no tension on the deltoids. As you start to lift your arm out to the side, it gets more and more and more, but where the resistance is greatest is where you reach sort of the top of the movement where your arm is straight out to the side, it's parallel with the floor, the lever is at its longest, the amount of work that the muscle has to do is at its greatest there. So it goes from very easy to very hard. Whereas other movements like a dumbbell bicep curl, for example, goes from very easy and it gets really hard right at the middle and then it gets easier again as you curl up all the way to the top. So that has a different resistance profile. Um, using things like bands and different machines and cables versus free weights and all this sort of stuff will all have a slightly different resistance profile. So the muscle is asked to do work at different points in the movement, uh, quite differently between all those different implements. And sometimes what we can do is we can program around that. So for example, if I was training my quads, I have a bunch of different exercises available to me. I could do leg extensions, I could do squats, I could do leg press, I could do lunges or step ups or split squats. All of these are really good quadricep movements, but some of them kind of overlap a fair bit. So if I was doing, say, in one single session, uh, a ton of paused squats, so I go down to the bottom, I pause, and then I drive up from there, and then I went straight into, say, a leg press where I also paused at the bottom, and then I went straight into something like a split squat where I also emphasized the bottom. All of these exercises are recruiting or emphasizing the lengthened or mid-range of the quads in the same session. So they're kind of a little bit redundant. Now, each exercise will obviously have a slightly different recruitment pattern in the quads. They'll all offer different stability, um, different execution cues, all this sort of stuff is all going to be slightly different. So they're not like exactly the same exercise or anything, but a way that you could get around this sort of redundancy in a session is perhaps to instead of do a paused squat and then a paused leg press and then a split squat, you could maybe swap out the split squat for like a leg extension, which emphasizes the shortened position a lot more than the other exercises. 
So this is one way that you can start to avoid redundancy in your training and avoid programming similar movements all the time. Now, programming similar movements is not a bad thing. Again, it just is something that we probably want to think about. Sometimes we want to have exercises that overlap in the same session. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we might have a ton of exercises that emphasize the lengthened position in a single programming phase. And then the next programming phase, we have a ton of exercises that emphasize the shortened position more. There's lots of different ways that you can mix and match this, but I think in terms of long-term development of strength and muscle, it's probably important to vary the resistance profiles of exercises that you use. I don't think in the short term, it makes that much difference. Maybe not even in the medium term. Um, but I do think that in the long term, it probably does make a difference. And the reason is because there are different muscle fibers that have to contribute in different ratios from in the same muscle with different exercises. So if we always did the same exercises for our bicep curls, then I think that over time we might see that development is not as even as it could be throughout the entire length of the biceps. And we've certainly seen that different exercises have different regional contributions from the muscle. So certain regions of the muscle will be stimulated more or less with certain exercise variations. So that's kind of the idea with programming similar movements. Uh, you might want to avoid it sometimes, but certainly we're not trying to stimulate the entire resistance curve in a single session. We're not necessarily trying to stimulate the entire resistance curve, even in the same training phase, but it does bear mentioning that in the long term, we want to have some variety in the exercises and the resistance curves that we use, because I think that that will allow better long-term development. So hopefully that gives you a little bit more insight. I know it's not super specific. I wish the answer was just like, yeah, you have to have one, you know, mid position emphasized movement and one length in position exercise movement in, in each day or in each program. But it's really not as simple as that. So anyway, I hope that helps, but it does open up some ideas that you can use when you come into using things like supersets. Like if you're gonna do two exercises in a row in the same muscle group or the same body part, what you could do is you could have one of those exercises emphasize, say the lengthened position and one emphasize the shortened position. And then you kind of train the complete um, profile of that muscle a little bit better than if you were to do two exercises the same. So I'll give an example of that actually before I close this out. So let's say you were training your chest and you were doing dumbbell presses into flies on your chest. So you do like a flat dumbbell press, which is gonna be a little bit more focused on the lengthened or the mid part of the range, um, more the mid part of the range with, that, with those dumbbell presses. Uh, you know, so if you sort of think about this, in a dumbbell press, the top is usually like pretty easy. There's not a lot of resistance against the pecs at the top of the movement, but it's much harder around the mid range. And then you did your set of that and you went straight into some dumbbell pec flies lying on your back. Now, again, that's gonna emphasize the lengthened position again, that's where the movement is hardest. And at the top of the movement, there's basically no tension whatsoever on the pecs at all. So in both of these exercises, you've placed the emphasis on that lengthened to mid-range sort of end of the, of the strength curve. Uh, what a better superset could be, or let's say a more complete set of resistance profiles for that superset could be, is doing your dumbbell press for sure, and then maybe going into like a banded pec fly or a cable pec fly, which would place a lot more emphasis on the shortened position of the muscle. So now you have one exercise that is emphasizing sort of the length into mid position, and you have another exercise that emphasizes more of like the 
mid to shorten position. And that way the muscle is sort of stimulated across its full strength curve a little bit better. Again, in a single isolated scenario, one of those is probably not necessarily better than the other, but in the long term, if I was to really nitpick with your exercise selection, I would say that option B over there is probably better for the long term. Cool. All right, I'm going to close it out there. Thanks very much for listening, everybody. Uh, once again, if you enjoyed this, please share it with a friend or family member and any feedback is more than welcome. Cool. You can email me at luke at lukeitalic.com. Otherwise, I'll catch you in the next one. Have a good day.